Well, good morning. Uh, <laughs> tough crowd. Fantastic to be here. It really is a delight. Um, it's kind of like, I, I don't really know Shrewsbury at all, um, uh, but was here yesterday morning. And um, it's kind of like, and here again today. I, I kind of, tomorrow I'll rent something, I think. It's great. <laughs> Such a brilliant place to be. And um, a real delight to be included in the series around the workplace. LICC, the group I work for, um, or at least I work four days a week for, were formed by and out of the ministry of a guy called John Stott. Now, you may or may not have heard of him, but those of you, particularly of a certain generation, might know that, (laughs) and you can make that generation any generation you want, (laughs) but John Stott, Um, was one of the foremost leaders in the evangelical church in the 20th century. He had a church just outside the BBC in London, and um, he wrote commentaries, he was overseas, he was absolutely massive influence on Christian thinking. In the early 1980s, what happened to him? He was in his sort of early 60s. And one of the things that happened to him was he became increasingly concerned about the fact that Christians, like you and me, can come to churches like this and read the Bible and get our way around the Bible and know our way around the Bible fairly well, but actually for that world to make not that much difference to the way we see the rest of our lives. In other words, what can happen too easily is that faith becomes so very personal and private that it does us good, and we believe wholeheartedly, but actually it doesn't give us a new frame for the whole of our lives. And out of that, LICC was born. And 30-odd years later, we're still working to try and help people like you and like me to work out what does it mean to follow Christ in the whole of our lives, and not just be good church people. I work for LICC four days a week. And alongside that, I am a church leader, along with a team of people. I've really only been involved in two churches over 30 years of being in formal church leadership um, and a pastoring role. One of them was in Guernsey. And I'll always explain it like this. I don't know if you've been to Guernsey, But Guernsey is beautiful. It's a small island, nine miles by three, in the middle of the English Channel. And um, certainly when we were there in the early 80s, it was the sort of place that when you drive to the town at 30 miles an hour, which is the speed limit on the whole island except where it's 20, you don't want to carry your car keys into town with you. So you park on the pier, you pop your keys for your car and your house and everything else you own, in the footwell of your car, close your door, go shopping, come back. And when you come back, of course, it's still there. For the people who would have stolen it are your neighbors, and you would just walk and get your car back on such a small island. (laughs) That's how safe Guernsey was and is. And from there, we moved to Salford in Manchester. (laughs) So clearly, you've been to Salford. And... um, The church that I was invited to be the pastor at um, was in the middle of the inner city, high-rise blocks. It was surrounded by barbed wire. It had steel shutters. It had had a a sort of a CCTV camera that used to bring in because they'd steal it. (laughs) 
we were going for this sort of the seeker-sensitive look, and, um, and that was the building that um, our church met in. And I'm still, we're not still in that building, but I'm still one of the leaders of that church. And it was in that church community that I first became aware of a massive blind spot in my own thinking, in my own mind, as a church leader. And it happened as I was preparing for a church prayer meeting. Because I'd been this, given this little church, really, and I wanted the church to grow. And so most of our church prayer meetings were about, God, will you make the church grow? Or will you bless the stuff we're doing from the church? Ordinary stuff. And this was my blind spot. If you'd have joined my church at that time, if you were new to the church, I would have this sort of conversation with you. What, what's your name? Phil. Phil. I just couldn't remember. So Phil comes to church for the first time, and that's great because he looks normal. <laughs> looks are deceptive, but he looks normal. So we're really glad to see him, because we were of a size where you really noticed when new people came. The second week Phil comes, we think we're on a roll. Do you know what I mean? It's like brilliant when they come once, but when they come twice, it's like fantastic. Third week, you think you're on revival. And, um, and the fourth week Phil comes, I have this sort of conversation with Phil. Phil, it is brilliant that you're with us. And um, although you're sitting on your own right now, we, and you don't need to answer this, but we would really hope you've got a big family. Um, but I'm trying to grow a church. Um, but we're really glad we hear this. And we were just wondering, Phil, do you play a bass? Because we just think we're one bass guitar away from a revival. And um, so do you play a bass? You don't play a bass. Your wife does. Do you know what? That's, that's the sort of good news church leaders love. So, Phil, what could you do? You must be able to do I mean, you've, got, you've clearly married above yourself, but you must, you, must, you must have gifts. What are your gifts? You're not sure? Okay. Do you have, a, uh, do you have clearance to, to work with children in a crash? You do. Fantastic. And has one of your big dreams been that when everybody else has left a building, <laughs> that you find yourself there with the opportunity to hoover everywhere and stack? Has this been a big dream of yours? Yeah. You see, hallelujah. <laughs> Suddenly, I've got a bass player, a children's worker, and a cleaner. I told you it was a good day when Phil came, and this was my blind spot. Because essentially what I'm saying to Phil, unintentionally, is, Phil, I'm glad you're here, because I've got a vision, and essentially I want to recruit you to my vision and my work. What would it look like? And, and, and so essentially Phil knows I'm really, they're glad I'm here because we are useful. But what would it look like if we switched it around and said, Phil, 
your wife has many gifts and you must have some, surely. <laughs> On the statistical level, I mean, it's just, you can always do the welcome team. Um, if, if nothing. <laughs> apparently not. You, you, <laughs> apparently not. <laughs> You're underqualified for that as well. But what would it look like if Phil came to a place and we said, Phil, we know that there'll be lots of ways you might want to get involved with us, but that's not the most important thing. We want to know where are you most of the time and how can we support you? What that would tell Phil is the reason you join a church is, and I'm speaking as a church leader now, you are not church fodder to keep the machine going. The church is there to equip you to be the people of God in the whole of your life, wherever that may be. Now, because we're family together, if you want tea and coffee at the end of the service, someone has to make it, eh? But the reason Jesus died and rose again and ascended on high and fills you with his spirit is not just so you can make coffee on a rota every four weeks or six weeks or however long. But, but we're family together, eh? And if you want to sing, then you want musicians, you, you, you want it to work together. So we've got things to give, but this is not the be-all and end-all of life. Actually, the reason we're together is that you might serve him. That was a massive blind spot for me. And the second blind spot was this. That if you were a teacher, I'd be glad and I'd want you to be part of our youth work, and I'd be disappointed if, in your leisure time, you didn't want to give more time to children. And if you're an accountant, I think, great, I've got a treasurer. In other words, what I'd missed was this idea of what does it mean, as we pray, may your kingdom come, for us to see the very places we're employed, the very places we give our time to, actually to be used for the purpose of God. One of the reasons I, I, I agreed to come down today is because often in our churches, we have overlooked the fact that you spend most of your time away from this place. You spend, if you're in employment, you work 50, 60, 70 hours a week that's linked to your workplace. This is your primary place where God wants to use you for the sake of the kingdom. And I'm absolutely delighted just to be able to explore with you perhaps some of the things that might be involved with that. I'm, I'm working on three assumptions. Let me give you very quickly the three assumptions. The first assumption is this. I wonder if you can just press, press me forward. We didn't know whether this would work very well. But. That firstly, you're a disciple of Jesus. Let me explain what I'm understanding a disciple of Jesus to be. A disciple is someone who's learning the way of Jesus in their context at this moment. That's what it means for you and I to be a disciple. And uh, although this morning and in this session, we are speaking specifically about those, and I'm, I've got in mind the people who are in work, uh, paid employment time. Actually, whether you're in paid employment or you're a stay-at-home parent or you're a, um, in, 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 the, in the phase of life where you're retired, actually, you never stop being a disciple, and that never changes for you. But in the workplace, what it means is 
what are the situations, what's the context you're facing in your workplace, and what's the way of Jesus for you there and now? The first time you get a job, what's the way of Jesus look like? The first time you're given responsibility for people at work, what's it look like? The first time, if it's your own business, that you go through the, the upheaval of economic crisis and you have to lay people off, or even worse, that you have to close your business. What's the way of Jesus in the midst of this? This is what it means to be a disciple. It's not just do you know a lot of stuff about Jesus, but actually are you learning the way of Jesus in your context at this moment, this stage of your life? My second assumption is this, that when we scatter from this place, tomorrow morning we are scattered around the county. And your red dots, you come here this morning, we break bread together, and we declare a completely different story about the way we see the world. And actually, tomorrow morning, when you scatter, you scatter as red dots, and God wants to use you if two things are true. The first thing has to be true is you have to stay red. If you gray out, and you become like everybody else, then actually, it's very difficult for us to be able to imagine how God can actually use you an agent of the kingdom. And secondly, you've got to own the place you're sent to. Even when, and maybe specifically when, you don't like it. I meet so many Christians who spend so much of their life praying that God would take them out of the situation they're in and put them somewhere else. The story of the Bible is this, that God wrestles with his people most of the time when they're not in the place they want to be, when they're in deserts and when they're in exile and when they're in empires. Most of the Bible is written about and for and shapes people who go, I am not in the place I would love to be. I wish I were somewhere else. But God, we believe, God, who oversees every detail of a life, knows this. And at the moment, for whatever reason, you are where you are. And you need to own it and go, while I'm here, I will serve the purpose of God. And my primary prayer is for that. My secondary prayer may be, and by the way, God, if I could get somewhere better, could you open it up? But my primary prayer is, while I'm here, I'll serve you. And my third assumption, if you can just move it on for me. My third assumption is that we are the gathered red dots of the kingdom of God together. And our church together needs to support one another. The reason there's seven red dots out of the hundred is because it represents approximately the percentage of people in the UK who worship in church once a month or more. But when we gather together, we support one another. We ask one another the obvious question, where will you be this time tomorrow? And what will you be doing? And how can I pray for you? And those of you, and this is that now absolute open for all of us. When you're in coffee afterwards, the reason, and this is an open secret, the reason we serve coffee at the end of church is not because you're thirsty. All right? The reason we serve coffee is because we want you to stay. And we think coffee We'll do it. All right, now I've not tasted your coffee yet, so I'm going to be, I'll, I'll, I'll test this out. 
But we want you to stay, and we want you to have conversations. So what's the conversation that's worth having before you scatter for the week? The conversation that's worth having is, where will you be this time tomorrow? Who will be with you? What will you be doing? And how can I pray for you this week? That's one of the conversations that's worth having. Because you haven't got a football team worth talking about down here. Do you know sometimes you come in as a prophet and it's just hard to hear, but... In those places, can we move the slide on? Or have you gone off me? In those places, you are called to be a witness. And I want to talk about the mission in your workplace. You may not be aware of this, but over the last 10, 15 years, in, um, in, in leadership circles, in the circles where, that, where people are sort of writing books and thinking and theologizing about what does it mean to be church, actually, there's been a whole stack of thinking about what does mission look like for churches. Some of you might have been around long enough to remember where churches would perhaps once or twice a year, say, we're going to have a mission, yeah? And we're going to do a mission week, and we'd all pull out all the stops. And then at the end of the week, we'd all go, oh, thank goodness that's over. (laughs) And what happened over the last 10, 15, 20 years is we moved away from thinking about mission like that to beginning to use the language of being missional. In other words, church and mission is not something you do as a spasm every now and again, but church and mission is about who you are, about everything we do, about the way we do life together. You need to think about the same for yourself. You need to think about your own life in the same way. In other words, mission and evangelism are not something you screw yourself up to do and quickly burst out and then go back to normal. Actually, what you're called to do is have a missional life. And the missional life means this, that in your context, you're working out what that looks like. And in work context, paid employment context, every work situation is like a different country with different customs and different cultures and different permissions. And depending on the sort of work you're in and depending on the position you have and depending on the sort of personality you are, you will do it all differently. But actually together we say we're going to do this missionally. And at LICC, one of the resources we did was we worked around what we call the six M's approach to the whole of missional life. It flows out of being a disciple of Jesus, but we suggested things like, well, what does it mean to be missional? The first thing is, make good work. Do your job well. And then secondly, model godly character. The fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, goodness. Do you know what? It sounds like church talk, but that um, evidence of the breath of God within you changes situations that you find yourself in. People are longing for kindness. And then minister grace and love, particularly if you're in leadership context at work. What does it mean to do leadership in an economic context with grace and love? What is, we've, we've just been celebrating the fact that we're recipients of grace and love. What does it mean to actually live out of that in your context. And then there's more. What does it mean to mold a culture around your way? How do you change things? 
And what's it mean to uh, be a mouthpiece for truth and justice? And what's it mean to be a messenger of the gospel? The first three really are around your attitude in your workplace. The third, uh, second three are really about the fact that you're willing to put your head above the parapet and say, I think we could do things differently around here. And actually, you've found a way of explaining the hope you have. This is what it means, in part at least, to live a missional life. Rather than this idea that you go to work and somehow you, you kind of just wanting to sort of squeeze Jesus into every conversation, no matter how artificial. It's been a dreadful week weather-wise this week, hasn't it? You say to your work colleague, and they go, yeah, it's been awful. You go, yeah, it was exactly this weather when I first met Jesus. Now, <laughs> just in case you're wondering, I don't think that's a great idea. It sounds artificial, it sounds like you're desperate, it sounds like someone said, get a sale. (laughs) It doesn't sound authentic and it doesn't sound like you. But there are days when you need to stand up and go, do you know what? The only way I can explain this is through a faith perspective. How do we share this brilliant good news? And it's that piece I want to finish, uh, come to in the last five, ten minutes. How do we share the brilliant good news? I met a guy who was uh, in a context with a whole stack of other uh, fellas. And he, was, uh, he had responsibility uh, in that context. And he looked around and he said, I-, I don't know how I can really share the good news with these people so that they would become part of church. It just seems too big a jump. And so he came up with a personal strategy of uh, a ministry of four tables. Four tables. Sounds very close to four candles, but it isn't. <laughs> but a ministry of four tables. And I just want to explore them really quite briefly, but linking them to the letter that Peter wrote to exiles. I think 1 Peter is probably the letter that is worth a church really exploring in some depth about living and um, behaving as a Christian in a context where if you've got certain convictions, you're not going to be very easily accepted. And 1 Peter writes to these sorts of contexts. Your first table is a desk. I wonder if you can put that up. Peter in uh, 1 Peter 2 writes, you are a chosen people. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. You are God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Your first uh, table is your desk, is your everyday context, and this is your identity. You are a priest at a desk. You're bringing two worlds together. That's what a priest does. The Latin for priest is pontifex. You might know that. Bridge builder. And Paul, Peter has this idea that the people of God are priests. That you go and you are a bridge builder. And actually it's in and at your desk. In the very ordinary 
place you are, where you are authentic and you are credible, where you look like good news, where you live out the, with consistency the implications of what it means to follow Jesus as Lord. Go to the next slide, please. When Titus writes a little letter to the church in Crete, he writes about how do you actually disciple slaves? And this is what he writes. Slaves, be, teach slaves to be subject to their masters and everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them, and not to steal from them. Because that's how slaves acted. That's how slaves acted. Every slave that Titus is thinking about, would want to say, can I get one over? But he goes on, don't be like that, but show you can be fully trusted so that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. In your day-by-day life, you have the opportunity to make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. or not. I went to a church um, once, and um, I, don't, I don't do much speaking in churches on a Sunday because I've got my own responsibility in my own church. But as a guest speaker, and y- you know, it's kind of like a strange place to be in because people are really nice to you, but you, you're just a visitor. You're not nobody. And the other thing that often, often, um, as a guest speaker, you get there before everybody else arrives. Okay, and it was true this morning. I noticed who was late. Um, <laughs> no guilt, just saying. And um, I was standing in church, um, in this particular church, and uh, sitting at the front, and behind me was another older couple, and I sort of turned around and was chatting to them, and I said, is this your church? And they said, no, we're just visitors. The whole building was empty. The, the only three people who were visitors were there. Everybody else had yet to come. And um, I, I was chatting to them, and I said, uh, so why are you here? And they said, uh, this is not our church because we're staunch Catholics. We don't, we don't worship here, but we love this church. And I said, why do you love it? And they said, because our son, our son comes here. And our son is a really bright, bright fella, mom said. She said, he went to Harvard. He's got a doctorate. But the most important person in his life was the sports teacher who came here. And when my son was 12, this sports teacher in this church made such an impression in school on my son, he shaped him. And I, so I was chatting, I was fascinated. And I said, does this sports teacher still come? Oh yeah, Ed's still here. And so I went to meet Ed. And... Uh, The dad said, this is Ed. This is the most important person in my son's life. Their son was 40 years old now, by the way. But as a parent of older children, they are always stuck in your mind at 15, eh? Ed is. And do you know what the the interesting thing is? What Ed had done for that whole family, because that young man became a Christian through Ed, what Ed had done was make Christianity attractive. A living faith in Jesus became attractive because of Ed. 
And all Ed was doing was teaching sports. You're a priest, you're at your table, and your table is a desk. Your second table, can we have the next slide on, please? Your next table is possibly a coffee shop or a bar or something like that. This guy who was talking to me said, my, my personal strategy is I want to be authentic at my desk, but I actually want to build relationships with people, and sometimes that has to happen outside of the desk, because actually I'm not there to proselytize. I'm there to work, but I can build relationships with people. Peter says, in your hearts reveal Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for this hope you have. But do it with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. Always be be prepared to give an answer for the hope that's in you. Well, if there's that context where people are going to ask you questions, how will they know about the hope? They will watch your actions, but actually you will have given time to get to know them. And some of you need to be more proactive about this. In a world where you can have a thousand Facebook friends, you need real face-to-face friends. And you're sent out with the love of God to build friendships around you. Friendships sometimes just happen sort of out of nowhere, and that's great. But actually sometimes you go and say, I'm going to make a friend of that person. I'm going to be the proactive one here. And Peter says, when they're asking you, why, why does this make sense to you? Do it with gentleness and do it with respect. Let me explain very quickly what respect looks like. Respect looks like, I really want to know you. I want to understand you. I want to listen to you. I don't want to steamroller you. I'm not going to be your friend just in case, just as long as you agree with me. And if you don't, then I'll break it. A gentleness and respect says, I value you for who you are, for I see the image of God in you. I see infinite worth in you. That's part, at least, of what respect looks like. Whether they belong to other faiths or not, my second table is a coffee table. Can you do the next slide for me? Share your life. Be curious. Be interested. Listen. Really listen. My third table is a dining table. I wonder if you can take me to the next slide. Peter says, finally, all of you, be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. Don't repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. At the moment in our own church, we've got some evenings that we're doing around apologetics and um, a whole bunch of people are coming along, um, including one guy who's not a Christian and who keeps saying, I am not a Christian. I do not believe any of this. And we go, yeah, we know. And, um, but, and he, but his big argument is, with us, is you've got to steamroll of these people more, Neil. You're too gentle. 
And we're going, no, you're not a Christian. You've got no idea. No, 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 no. And we're going, yeah, but you're a bit more like Jesus. No, I think you're wrong. In other words, what he's doing, he's coming in and going, if you want to get your message out, you've got to be like the rest of the world. What Peter says is, you've got to learn together in this community some personal characteristics that will mean you are radically different in your responses in the rest of the world. And that's what a community of faith begins to look like. So the reason that the third table is a dining table is because actually the person you're wanting to build a friendship with, the person that you're actually demonstrating what the, the, the love of God looks like, come and meet my friends because my friends will blow your mind. Because this is what we learn in church. We learn in church radical, outrageous generosity. In Matthew chapter, uh, chapter 6, Jesus talks about the hallmarks of a disciple. Three hallmarks. You'll pray, you'll fast, you'll be outrageously generous. That's why Dave can stand up and go, we've got six strangers coming. Can some of you open up your homes to them? And you'll go, yeah, we can. We don't know who they are, but we don't care. We don't know if we'll like them. We don't care. We don't know if they'll be difficult. We don't care, because actually what we've learned together is to be outrageously generous. Because what we're learning to do together is practice hospitality. And what that means is then, when we're in different contexts, we will bless those who persecute us. We will do good to those who would harm us. We've learned a different response to the world. And actually, when you're inviting people who don't know Jesus to come and meet your friends, what they're encountering is not a sermon or a Bible study or someone who's going to Bible bash them. What they're encountering is a whole different response to the ways of the world. A table, a desk a coffee table, a dining table, and then lastly, and finally, can we go to the last one? The Lord's table. The Lord's table at which we invite our friends to say, do you want to come and encounter? Do you want to be part of us? Do you want to experience this? It says 1 Peter 3, it should actually say 1 Peter 1. Though you've not seen him, you love him. Even though you don't see him now, you believe in him. You're filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith. The salvation of your souls. The people you work with. The people you're sent to. The people God has placed you with need to know the brilliant good news of Jesus. They need to know this. And they need to participate with you in it. You don't get from a desk to the Lord's table, though. It's too big a jump. So let me sort of round all this up. Let me bring it together. And then let me say one more thing. Firstly, your primary mission space is the place you spend most of your time. And for many of you in the room, that's going to be a work context. And church is not an escape from work, but church is a resource that shapes you for work. 
God has placed you there for many different reasons, but one of the reasons is because you're an agent of mission. The sending God has sent you into that context. You need to own it and say, this is my space. And from time to time, just as next week, you're going to hear from the the guys who went to Zambia about what God is doing through the bread project of people who are working in Zambia. So from time to time, you need to be able to do exactly the same with one another. What are you seeing in your field? And how can I help? That's the conversation that's worth having over coffee. In order to do that, though, you need to have a missional life, not a life of spasmodic mission, but a missional life. You act in certain ways, you put your head above the parapet at certain times. But you also need a strategy for the people you're at. Four tables, desk, coffee, dining, lords. Where are you up to in all of that? You may be the only Christian in your workplace. That's why you're there. You may be the only people that others will ever look at and go, so that's what it looks like. That's why you're there. God wants to use you. The missionary sending God sends his people into his field. May you go with the blessing of God on you. May you go with courage. And some of you that don't are not employed at the moment, but you still work, may you go too. And may you that remember what it was like in the workplace, the paid workplace, may you cheer on a younger generation. May you know what it is to be the missionary people of God. Amen. Yeah, we're so grateful to you. Thank you so much. I'd love to conclude by praying just for a moment. Let's pray, shall we? So have in our minds these tables, the desk, the coffee table, the dining table, 